Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome to another episode of Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you're here. And I'm so happy that you have been here 20,000 times. We are celebrating big time here at Ashley Barlow Company this week because we hit a big milestone, 20,000 downloads of our little podcast. I never dreamed that we would do that within the first two years, and I am so excited about where the podcast is heading in the future. I truly have loved connecting with so many of my guests and with you, the community. I really love that I've started this company mostly because I love how much I have learned. You know, when I went to law school, I had considered several other things as I was leaving the classroom, sales probably being the first other um, career choice that I was pursuing. And I thought, I wonder if I will get to continue to learn if I am in sales. And that's really what drove me to law school. The ability to continue to learn, the ability to help additional people, the ability to continue to develop as a human. And of course, along came my Jackman, who taught me a whole new world and a whole new dynamic. And I am so happy that you, my listeners, and the disability community, no matter what role you play in the disability community, I am so happy that you are a part of that journey. And I am so honored to be a part of your journey. Thank you for 20,000 episodes, and thank you for continuing to support Ashley Barlow Company. Today, we're going to talk about something that is pretty unique to my journey as a parent of Jack, a little guy that has Down syndrome and who has pretty significant sensory processing deficits. We're going to talk about sensory processing. Now, this is really funny. I had this scheduled for today. And over the weekend, I'm recording this on a Monday, and so I am fresh off of a weekend during which Jack had a lot of sensory processing difficulties. A weekend where we had to spend a lot of time trying to get Jack more regulated so that he could enjoy and he could be present in our home life. And so what I'm going to share with you today is nothing that um, I have... Um, it is nothing from an occupational therapist. This is strategies that we certainly have learned from occupational therapists and from teachers and friends and that sort of things. But this is kind of coming from Dr. Mom. I'm going to share with you sensory strategies that work for us in our house and then kind of just a roundup of additional sensory strategies that I oftentimes share with my clients when their children are struggling with sensory strategies at home. So what are sensory strategies? What is, let's talk about sensory integration first. 
You know, when we talk about sensory integration, we talk about those five senses that we learned about probably in kindergarten. I know I learned in kindergarten because this is an aside, um, but my mom was my kindergarten teacher. Um, we Here's an aside within an aside. I used to tease that I was going to pretend that I didn't know the alphabet so that I could stay in kindergarten longer because it was really great having my mom as a teacher. And I remember when we learned the different areas of the tongue and how you could taste. And so we, you know, um, put some lemon on our tongue and some chocolate and some salt and that sort of thing. And I remember that exercise very clearly, quite strangely, because I don't think I remember much of first grade, but I have this very distinct memory from kindergarten. So we've known a lot about our senses for a long time. But when we talk about sensory integration, particularly with a child or a person that struggles with sensory integration, yes, of course, we're talking about vision, we're talking about touch, hearing, taste, and smelling, but we're talking about how our body processes those in order to be able to access the world around us. And so we're talking about how our body processes those visual stimuli. Does our body seek those or does our body kind of avoid visual stimuli? We're talking about the tactile stimuli. How do we feel when our body touches different kinds of surfaces, different kinds of environments, things that might be wet, things that might be dry, rough, soft, etc. How does our body perceive sound? How does our body kind of generalize that auditory input and what does auditory input do to our ability to take in the environment around us? Taste, what do tastes do to us? How does that affect the way our body is kind of regulating itself? And then as we talk about feelings, there are actually kind of two different feelings that we talk about with sensory integration. We talk about proprioception. Proprioception is how your body feels in space, where you feel in relation to the world around you. And we also talk about interoception, which is your internal feelings, sadness, happiness, um, confusion, anger, those things. And so those are kind of the six sensory um, uh, keys, components. This is where Dr. Mom comes in because I don't really know the word. The six senses maybe that we talk about when we talk about sensory integration, visual, tactile, auditory, taste, proprioception, and interoception. And, you know, there's also other things like vestibular input and that kind of stuff, which we're going to talk about. And honestly, I don't even know. Maybe vestibular input comes in in proprioception because vestibular input is um, spinning and that probably affects like vestibular is kind of the, um, the inner ear system. Um, and so that's probably proprioception, but that's just a guess. <laughs> okay, so why is it important to talk about sensory integration? Well, it's important to talk about sensory integration because it can affect so, so much. 
you know, during COVID, I had, and I and I still think that we are during COVID, by the way, but um, in shutdown COVID, when my son wasn't going to school, I had a talk with our um, school principal because Jack was really, really dysregulated for a little bit. And um, one of the things that she said to me, which was so, so basic, was nobody learns when they're experiencing trauma. We don't learn well when we are experiencing trauma. And he was in a traumatic state because his entire world had gotten stripped from him. He wasn't able to go to school or restaurants or activities or play dates or any of those things. And so she said, we need to concentrate on getting him better so that then he's able to learn. And of course I agreed with that but she said it so simply and it really stuck with me so many times throughout that year that I was educating him at home with the help of his teachers. And that's kind of the key to sensory integration. If we are not able to access our environment because of some kind of sensory seeking or sensory avoiding um, tendency that we have, we aren't going to be able to learn or interact with other people or um, be calm enough to enjoy something. And so there's a real key in simply understanding how different sensory, um, how different information affects a child. You know, a few years ago, Jack is, um, I think actually due for his triennial evaluation this year. So this must have been about three years ago. One of the things that we learned in his last evaluation, I think about three years ago, was that Jack is extremely auditorily distracted. Now we knew that to be true, but when we compared it to other distractors, we realized that the auditory distraction was really significant. And we see that year after year after year. So just recently in a parent-teacher conference, his teacher was telling me that he doesn't do well at the end of the day. And I said, well, what's happening at the end of the day? Well, everybody's packing up, they're getting their stuff, it is kind of chaotic. And I said, well, the chaos, he does not do well in chaos. He likes a very, very structured environment. But probably more than that, it is very auditorily distracting. Chairs are getting pushed in. We know that sound of a school chair getting pushed in or pulled out. Zippers are getting zipped. Um, coats are getting put on. There are all of these different sounds that are not in his environment. And that kind of intensity during the, the rest of the school day, and it's probably, honestly, too much. And so maybe we need to try headphones and a listening activity that he can do. Maybe we need to give him some other sensory input so that he can succeed during that time of day. And so of course right now there's a, a major cleaning protocol at schools at the end of the day. And one of the things that she had told me she was doing was squirting desks and then the children would wipe off the desks. Well, Jack loves to clean. And I know that this is kind of a hot topic because a lot of people in the disability community say, my child's not responsible for cleaning the room. I'm not talking about Jack cleaning the room because he is disabled and because that is a job that he has. I'm talking about Jack cleaning the room because he gets sensory input from it because he's working with his hands and he's pressing against a surface. So I don't have a problem with this, but I certainly understand when other families have problems with this. But I suggested that Jack clean the desks of the four people in his little pod. 
And that has worked immensely well because he's feeling and he's getting, um, um, uh, uh, what is the word? I hate it when that happens to me. He is being prompted by his teachers. He's being prompted to really push to make sure he covers all of the surface to really do a good job. And the reason that they're prompting him for that is so that he gets that tactile input and he gets kind of the heavy work piece of that activity. And that has resolved a lot of these problems. They also, also, they also allow him to be dismissed a little bit early, not to leave the school building, but to do a job. He goes and he opens the doors so that the students can exit the classroom. This gives him a big opportunity for heavy work because those doors are heavy. He gets a little fine motor because he puts the... Um, that tricky block door opener in, um, which is hard for him. And it gives him the opportunity to kind of conquer the door opening task, um, which really sets him up for a good dismissal, which had been another um, time that he was struggling a little bit. He was running away from me. If I was the one to pick him up, he was not super kind to friends because he was just super dysregulated at that time of day. So what we did was we gave Jack some opportunities to access sensory regulation strategies in order to help him succeed so that he could get packed up at the end of the day, which is very functional, and so that he could interact with his friends in a more functional way at dismissal. The key to that was figuring out A, what was bothering him or dysregulating him, and B, how to access other strategies in order to resolve it. So what else do we do? And particularly, what do we do at home? Well, a few years ago, we had Santa bring us a ninja gym in our garage. So our garage has kind of monkey bars that are um, hanging down from the ceiling. And on the monkey bars, we can hang various different sensory strategies. We can use them as monkey bars. We also can um, hang um, kind of rock climbing grips that Griffin really used to love to do. Um, I think Griffin was in third or fourth grade when we did this. My kids have always loved American Ninja Warrior, so he would make kind of routines on it. Jack doesn't have the motor strength for that, the, the, the hand grip strength for that. Um, but Jack certainly enjoys feeling those different grips and hanging down um, from the monkey bars down onto one of those things and kind of dropping to the floor. He loves the kerplunk of dropping to the floor, which is good proprioceptive input for him. That kind of crashing feeling is good for him. Jack has a rope swing, which really is good heavy work for him. He has a cargo net. He has a um, rock climbing wall. And then other things that we can hang from those monkey bars, like his hammock, a sensory swing. Um, we have rings where he can do flip after flip after flip. We have a bar that he can flip on. Um, sometimes he'll even just hang one of our playground swings in there, particularly in the winter when we aren't playing on the playground outside. So we just put a little space heater in our garage, and that has been a great opportunity for our kids to get some really good sensory, um, uh, heavy work kind of things and some regulating activity for them. Jack and I also do a lot of yoga. 
I found a yoga program that I really liked on Teachers Pay Teachers. I'm sure it was just a couple of dollars and it has a really nice thing in the beginning. So there is a two-sided piece of paper and um, it says, this is how I feel before yoga. And it's got a whole list of feelings with a facial expression to go with it. And then at the end of yoga, this is how I feel after yoga. And so Jack and I always spend a little bit of time working on that interoception. This is how I feel. Now, interoception is something that Jack and I are working on a lot in occupational therapy, and I'm gonna talk about that in a second. But actually labeling the feelings is something that he is needing a lot, a lot of help on. Actually knowing what feelings feel like and letting his body feel the feelings is something that is new to him and something that he is quite frankly really struggling with. So this idea of interoception is very, very important. But then what he and I will do is we'll put together a three or four pose sequence. So we'll practice each pose. The one that we have um, calls the poses by things in nature, lots of animals and then mountains and rivers and that kind of thing. And then we'll practice them a couple of times and then we'll put them together in some kind of sun salutation type of thing. I'm not trained in yoga, but I do yoga myself. Um, and we'll do that three or four times. And then we'll end with a namaste. And if I think that I've gotten him calmed down enough, we will even try a shavasana where we just lie on our backs and we try to lie still for a few minutes in order to really kind of think about how we are feeling and to kind of let everything go away. And then we finish it up with how we're feeling after yoga. And I try to guide him to really give an honest answer. He usually likes to say happy, happy for everything, because that's an emotion that I think was taught to him as being good. And so he wants to be good. He wants for everybody else to think that he has good behavior or that he's feeling well. And so lots of times he just wants to say happy. Another thing that Jack really likes to do, which is I think pretty unique, is he likes formal really kind of regimented exercise. He likes to do squats and planks and wall push-ups and jumping jacks and um, running. He likes to do that. I'm sure it's heavy work. He's very motor driven, um, but it also I think must give him some kind of sensory input. His body feels good when it is taxed. I one time said to my best friend, don't you feel good when your abs are just a little bit sore? And I remember I was talking to her and I was working my salad spinner and just working my salad spinner was making my abs kind of like, it was telling me that my abs were sore from Pilates or yoga or whatever I was doing at the moment or had been doing. Um, and she was like, that is the weirdest statement anybody has ever said. But I kind of relate to this craving of Jack's. I know that I feel a lot better if I have exhausted myself. If I have run, if I have gone for a long bike ride, if I have done a hard yoga class, if I have really worked hard at formal exercise, I can get 10,000 steps in the course of a normal day and feel okay, feel good. But if I've run 6,000 steps and then I only have 7,500 for the day because I've had a long work day, I probably feel better than those Saturdays and Sundays when I get 10,000 and he haven't really even necessarily worked for them. The idea of formal exercise really helps some people feel more grounded. 
I'm sure you have friends that say that they run because it makes them nice. <laughs> it makes them nice to their kids. It makes them concentrate at work, etc. I always say I have to do some kind of cardiovascular something or exhaust myself some way in order to feel grounded and in order to, I always say, in order to feel like the rest of the world. And of course, I know that lots and lots of people are dysregulated that way. But I really, sometimes I sit in court and I look at, particularly, I feel like it's men, older men that can just sit there and stare and pay attention to court. And I think, oh my gosh, my brain is going in a million different directions. And if I had just been able to run before I came to this hearing, I'd be able to just stare off into space like, like that old guy in front of me. I don't know what their secret is. Maybe they do run in the morning and, then, and, they, um, and they are hiding it from the rest of the world. Another thing that works with Jack particularly well is water. So if he's feeling dysregulated, I almost always give him access to some kind of water. Now in the summertime, the easiest thing for us is the hose. The hose has been something that he will play with for hours ever since he was a toddler. We give him the hose and a couple of buckets and he just likes to get super wet and to play. He'll do container play, he'll water the plants, he'll quite frankly just sit and watch the hose, the water come out of the hose. He will play with a hose forever. It's probably not the cheapest activity that we have him do, but it really does help him to calm himself down. And it helps to just kind of regulate him so that he is more able to access his environment. Of course, you know that we like to swim, and so, of course, we take Jack to the pool. Now, I think the pool has a couple of different benefits. The first is that when you're in the water, you get all kinds of sensory input. Water is wet, which is something that is unique, something that we only otherwise access if we're doing the dishes or taking a bath or something. We aren't necessarily in water all that often. But water also has pressure. So the deeper you go, the more pressure you feel. Jack spends a lot of his time underwater. And I think that's because he wants his ears, he wants for the water to fill up his ears. And he wants, that must do something to his vestibular system. Um, and so he's underwater a whole lot of the time. But then in addition to that, if I can get him to swim, swim, to swim laps, um, he is working so much of his brain. You know, if we're moving the left side of our body, the right side of our brain is working. If, if we're moving the right side of our body, the left side of our brain is working. If we are reciprocating right, left, right, left, right, left, we are firing the entire brain in order to do that. And in swimming, your arms and your legs are doing different things. You're coordinating so much. And so we're really, really kind of firing up that brain. Griffin, if you follow me on social media, you know that Griffin is a competitive swimmer. And he said to me the other day, mom, is it weird that I'm speaking to myself in German? He's in German one. Is it weird that I'm speaking to myself in German when I swim? And I said, no, buddy, that's kind of the great benefit of swimming is, first of all, it's boring, so, so your brain is kind of turned off. But then because your brain is working so hard to swim, it's really kind of also fired up in a totally different way. And it helps you to do math problems or in your case, to practice German or to think or to pray or to do whatever else. It makes you more present so that your body is naturally inclined to practice those things. That's one of the beauties of swimming. And he really kind of understood it. And so then I told him about 
why we do swimming for Jack. And I'm sure I had told him this a thousand times before and he got it. He was like, yes, I totally feel that. So the sensory piece of it, the work part of it, and then what is going on in your brain when you are swimming is super duper cool. It's like one of my favorite things to talk about. There's lots of other things that we can work on with reciprocation too, right? I mean, dance is very similar, riding a bike is very similar, etc. Sometimes if we don't have access to be able to go to the pool or it's winter and we can't use the hose, I'll just plop Jack in the bathtub. It might be Sunday at two o'clock, but he is having a hard time and so I'll stick him in the bathtub. We might do shaving cream, we might just do buckets of water, we might um, put some letters in there or whatever, some bath toys and he is happy and he comes out a totally different kid because he's had that stimulation from the water. Another thing that works very well with Jack and it works with a lot of my clients is some fine motor stuff, some, um, some craft or even baking or something that is involving those smaller muscles and kind of more attention to detail. When he was a little guy, stringing beads would make him a totally different kid. It would just make him concentrate and be ready to learn and much more present less kind of in the clouds, not grounded. Stringing beads would really work to ground him. And I think it's because his visual perception was really, really targeted in order for him to be able to string those beads, not to mention the fine motor piece of it. Now what we do a lot of times is crafts. And I think there's two benefits to doing crafts. First of all, um, I guess an, an unspoken benefit is he gets my one-on-one -on -one attention. You know, I've set something up for him. He feels special because I've done it. He's excited to do it. Um, he and I subscribe to Kiwi Crate, which is um, a really, really great craft thing that usually teaches some lesson. The one that we just did this month was about magnets and it taught us about magnets, you know, kind of a science lesson. But when we do a Kiwi Crate or if I set up some kind of seasonal craft or some kind of sensory craft, um, he knows he's got my one-on-one -on -one attention. He also gets that fine motor input. But then in addition to that, he has to really kind of strengthen or stretch his attention span because I, I make him complete the craft. I make him do the cutting and do the pasting and look at the space and learn about it, etc. And that really helps him to kind of focus. It gives him the input that he needs in order to be present and um, calm enough and ready to learn. And then finally, I want to talk about interoception because as I said, that's what we've been working on the most. And I sense that probably a lot of my clients are in a very similar situation. And so maybe this will help you as well. You know, we have plenty of books about feelings and we've talked about feelings and feelings are kind of part of our everyday lives. But I don't think that prior to now, I had spent a whole lot of time teaching Jack about feelings. And most of the things that Jack has learned in life, he has been specifically taught. Many of the things that Griffin just kind of picked up on by living his life have had to be specially taught to Jack. And so it only makes sense that I have to specially, we as a family and as a community, have to specially teach Jack about feelings. And so, as I said before, 
the thing that we were noticing was that Jack wasn't super empathetic to other people's feelings. And so if he was aggressive with a peer, which doesn't happen very often anymore, but if he was aggressive with a peer or with a dog, or if he um, hurt a friend's feelings or something like that, I could tell that he did not know, he did not necessarily care how that other person was feeling, which led me to then have this epiphany that he really didn't know how he ever felt. I don't really think that Jack understands how he feels. I don't think he is in tune with his feelings. And that's that interoception piece of it. And that's okay. It's just something that we have to figure out. You know, <laughs> I was as I've explored this, um, I realized, so we're using zones of regulation. And zones of regulation has these four colors. Blue is kind of sad and melancholy. Um, Green is um, ready to learn and present and regulated. Yellow is a little buzzy, a little um, ungrounded, a little too um, zippy, too fast, too, um, it's me. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm about to tell you. It's like that kind of chronic anxiety. I always say my anxiety fuels me. It's what makes me want to do more, but maybe it isn't super healthy from a mental health standpoint. And then red is angry and mad and frustrated. So zones of regulation has these four colors. And we're using a lot of the words um, in addition to the colors because Jack is colorblind. And while Griffin can see those four colors, he's also colorblind. We just aren't quite sure how much Jack can see. So we're really trying to use the words and the colors because it's a great curriculum, but he is unfortunately colorblind. <laughs> And so as we're talking through our feelings, what I realized is, you know, I probably live in the yellow. And I would imagine that Jack lives in the yellow, and that's probably why, as I just gave this list of things, he is very, very motor-seeking and motor-driven because he needs to really kind of work through all of that in order to be calm enough to go into the green, to be ready to learn to be present. And one of the things that we were reading um, talked about how you breathe when you're in the green. And I was like, oh, I never breathe like that. Like, as I'm doing this podcast, I realize <sighs> I haven't taken a full breath below my rib cage probably the entire time that I've been doing this podcast. And so teaching him has also helped to teach me. But I have since, since we started this just a few months ago, I have ordered lots of books on Amazon. I have ordered lots of um, visuals and helpers, little programs on Teachers Pay Teachers. I am actually printing some today that I'm going to make into kind of file folder games um, that he and I can start to work on because I think we're going to have to reinforce this from several different places. And I really think this is kind of the key to figuring out his anxiety, his feelings, and his regulation. And so this idea of interoception, while it is fairly new to us, I really think that it is going to help immensely and I'm already seeing the benefits of it for us. Okay, before we wrap up, I wanna to talk to you about other sensory strategies that work um, for my clients, for um, my own family, um, and for you know things that OTs have shared with me throughout the years. 
So lots of times what happens is I have a child that is just kind of um, dysregulated, kind of off the rails in my practice, so to speak. I get a lot of behavior cases and there's kind of a trend. I don't know if it's only here in the two states where I practice law, but a lot of my cases involve little boys that have Down syndrome and also have ADHD. And teachers are kind of at their wits end because they can't get the child ready to learn. They can't regulate them and get them conditioned kind of for learning. And that is okay. But what we have to do is we have to give them strategies so that they can get um, the child ready to learn. So one of the first things that I suggest is incorporating animal walks into their day. Do a crab walk, do a seal walk, do some jumping frogs as you're going between centers or from the carpet back to your desk or lining up for lunch. Easy peasy, everybody likes to do it. Probably even in fourth grade, the kids think that is fun. Another thing that you'll see as you walk through the halls of a school that is really keyed into sensory input is children that are accessing um, heavy work by doing planks or wall push-ups or um, you know, some kind of jumping jack activity or some kind of formal exercise in their classrooms, by their desk, in the hallways, in a sensory room, etc. In order to stimulate that vestibular system, sometimes I'll recommend that children have a place where they can swing, where they can spin, where they can do somersaults or cartwheels. Where can we get that spinning sensation during the school day or at home? And then of course, some kids just love to crash and they need to crash and they need to feel their body kind of feel un uncomfortable in space to really feel the ground, feel the earth, feel their environment, but then also kind of push them and make them a little bit wobbly. So an exercise ball or one of those BOSU balls, um, couch cushions, we can just step on couch cushions, crash into couch cushions. I'll never forget in our early intervention, Kentucky has first steps, some of you might have helped me grow or some other um, program, but within the first couple of weeks, they took the couch cushions off of my couch. And this is when I still felt like those people were guests in my home. And I was like, oh, for heaven's sakes, I've cleaned the entire house, but I didn't think to vacuum in my couch. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> but couch cushions have been a key to our success for many, many years. Some kids really need to access the ability to have either light or darkness. And so sometimes even just affecting the brightness of the lights in the room will help. Um, but also having opportunities to seek light, like with the um, toy, the light bright, or making shadow puppets, playing with flashlights. Flashlight hide and seek is a um, fan favorite in my house. We play it in the basement in the evenings, and that's something that's very fun. Um, I could tell you Jack's hiding spot because it's always the same. <laughs> but we pretend like we don't know where he is. Um, the ability to use your mouth to feel things. You know, so many kids feel things with their mouths. That was a big one for us this weekend. Um, Jack was putting everything in his mouth. Well, it turns out he's getting a molar. Aha! I thought, why is he putting everything in his mouth like a toddler? It's so annoying. Well, it turns out he is getting a tooth. And finally, he was gagging himself. So I said, let me look in there. And I saw a tooth erupting. And I thought, well, there's the secret. 
But what can we do for that? Blow bubbles, we can blow cotton balls or feathers, or we can blow paint. All of those things are going to help our mouths to warm up and help us feel our mouth in space and to help us be ready and to maybe address whatever our mouth is doing and feeling so that we are more present in our environments. There are also all kinds of sensory bins that you can make. There are these little water beads called Orbeez. I'm sure there are generics that are really fun to do. We can hide stuff in shaving cream, hide stuff in rice, hide stuff in leaves. If you just Google sensory bin or type it into Pinterest, you'll find all kinds of ideas. Other ideas for fine motor, you can do tweezers or Play-Doh or Stringing beads like I talked about, finger painting. Um, Jack does not like to get messy. He is sensory avoidant in that particular manner. Um, and so I used to put paint inside. I think maybe I put it in there with something else. You could Google this, but paint inside of a baggie and then tape the baggie to make it extra um, secure. But I'd stick stuff in there, like maybe even just sequins, and he could kind of move them around inside the baggie. And he really used to enjoy doing that. Um, we sometimes will work on our breathing. One of the strategies that I think is particularly helpful is box breathing, where you take a breath in and you kind of picture yourself going, let's say maybe up the wall of a square and then breathe out and now you're going across the top and breathe in and you're going down and to the right and breathe back out and you are closing up the box. And so he and I, I'll just draw a square and we will breathe in two, three, four, out two, three, four, while we are tracing um, the box with our fingers. And that sometimes helps um, calming music, animal sounds, sound machines, etc. That can be helpful. Um, and then a big kind of trend that we saw a lot, particularly at the beginning of COVID when everybody was at home, was sensory walks. So um, sidewalk chalk or a big thing of paper at home, and you might do a figure eight that the children have to um, walk around and then they get a little bit dizzy. You might do like a little swirly in, in sidewalk chalk and that means spin around three times. You might do something where you have to jump side to side to side to side um, like those um, skier, downhill skier kind of drills that people do in gyms. You might do a spot where you have to run super duper fast or run in place, jumping jacks, all of those things. And that makes it fun just doing it as a sensory walk with sidewalk chalk. And it also makes it um, nice and comprehensive because you can kind of structure out exactly what your child might need. As time went on and as I was educating Jack at home, we incorporated a medicine ball, a pogo stick, stilts, you know, anything I could get to mix it up to make it more exciting for him, but also to get him lots of access in his case to heavy work and um, proprioception. I hope this has been helpful. Again, this is coming from Dr. Mom. I'm not an occupational therapist. I don't have any other medical degrees. This is all stuff that I've learned as I've taken him to therapy and as I have talked to other occupational therapists um, with clients in mind. So I will see you next week, same time, same place. Have a great week.